Well, I want to welcome you all in this morning uh, as we launch our two-week Christmas series we're calling The Word Became Flesh uh, here at Redbrush. This morning, though, I want to start off by uh, congratulating uh, a a couple groups of people. Uh, One, uh, last night the North Clay Cardinals took home the Conrad Allen Holiday Tournament Championship and the girls, uh, the cheerleaders, took home the second place trophy. So uh, would you just give them a round of applause? That's a... It's a big accomplishment, and that's kind of been the topic of, of conversation with many of you this morning. You want to talk about the game, and uh, one of the things, if you, if you weren't there, uh, here's what you need to know. Uh, it was a very emotional game, uh, very, very, very high stakes, very high energy, and, and so a lot of the conversations that I've had have revolved around, man, I, I got really worked up last night and, and kind of feeling bad, and I, I just want to remind you of who you're talking to. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, I was the North Clay High School varsity coach from 2012 uh, to 2015. Now, I'm not going to share my win-loss record. That's irrelevant for this. However, there is one record that I hold that I believe will never be broken. Most records were made to be broken. I believe I've set one that is probably set in stone in the foundation of North Clay Boys High School basketball. That is for the quickest ejection in a game. Uh, I was kicked out of my very first high school varsity coaching basketball game. Uh, Got two technicals very quick and watched the rest of the game and the next game from the window outside. And so uh, there are certain records that will never be broken. So as you've talked about your emotions running high in that game, just know who you're talking to here. So I understand exactly uh, what you're dealing with. Well, this morning, again, we are going to uh, focus on the Christmas story, uh, but what I want to do is, is really take you to probably a different place than maybe you've started in the past. Uh, typically, Luke 2 is where we would start reading. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. That is where normally the Christmas story starts for us. Uh, but what if I told you today that Luke chapter 2 and the uh, events that transpired therein However traditional, however monumental they were, were not the moments that the redemption story of God was set into motion. We tend to function as though the birth of Jesus is is really the first time that he enters into the scene of this story. But what I want to do today as we start this series is, is take you back, not just to the beginning of the Christmas story per se, but to the beginning beginning as we look at the moment that, in the word the Bible tells us, comes into the story. Let me start by asking you this question. Have you ever tried explaining the origins of God to a child? Have you ever tried to to wrap your mind around what it entails to explain who God is and, and how he came into existence? A few years back, I tried to explain this to my daughter, and and to be honest, the response from her is actually the response I get from a lot of adults I try to explain where God came from and and try to make it as, as relevant and explanatory as I can. Because what I found is that there is this universal sense in adults and in children alike that there is a mystery of God that, and an inner working of God that we as human beings cannot fully fathom. And at Christmas time, there seems to be this renewed interest into the mystery of God. His son came, but, but how did he get here and where did he come from? All of these questions start to resonate with us. 
And so the question is, well, well, who is God? Where did he come from? What, what did he do? These are questions that are difficult to answer, and I, I found that answering these questions, whether to kids or adults, the response is, is often the same. So in trying to explain this to my oldest daughter a few years back, she, she inevitably asked this question. Well, where did, where did God come from? The answer that I try to give is, well, he didn't come from anywhere. Right? He's just always been there. God has, has never had a beginning. He's, he's never had an end. And, and before everything that you see now, God, God was, he was here. That answer never suffices. There's always a follow-up question. But how did he get to be the way that he is? And my response to that question is, is not very sufficient either. He just, he just is. He just is the way that he is. He's, he's always been the way that he is. There's, there's not been someone or something that has ever created God. He's always been forever. And if you've tried to explain that to a, a child or an adult alike, you, you may feel like you've left something on the table, like there's got to be more. The reality is, is that is a perfect answer. God is who he is. God has always been. God will always be. And the point of all of this is that in God, and by extension through his son, life is found. Life. We serve a God who is alive, a God who has always been alive, a God who will always be alive. And it leads us to the conclusion that God's power and his authority is on display and that the one constant before creation and eternity past and continuing to, to eternity future has been, is, and will be that God is life. And in him is life. And, and so as you've wrestled with these questions, it leads you to start to understand why the prophet Isaiah says what he does in Isaiah 55. In trying to fathom the inner workings of God and who he is and what he has done, he comes to this conclusion. Your ways are higher than my ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so as we start this series over the next two weeks, this is what hangs at the top. That in God is life. That he is the creator, that he is the sustainer, that everything that has been and will be is as a result of him. And so we start from this standpoint, and it leads us to where we're going to walk through over the next two weeks. John chapter 1. This morning we're going to work through verses 1 through 13, and next week we're going to take a big chunk we're going to work through verse 14. But as we do this, what you're going to see is that the rescue mission that God has sent for us through his son is really a declaration of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing in us. And so if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 1 is where we're going to kick off things this morning. 
John writes this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, I don't often break down words into their original language unless it's just extremely, extremely important for you to grasp what the writer is trying to say. And in this particular passage, as John says the word word, he's using the Greek word logos. Logos was something that would have been familiar to a primarily Greek audience, which is who John is writing to. And as John uses the word logos, it would have triggered something in the audience's mind that would have went back to their use of the word, which really meant like the the reason and the logic for why everything is. The thing that keeps the universe running. In their mind, it it was reason, it was logic, it was human thought. But John is taking this higher and he's saying, listen, at the beginning of all things, and even now, What is creating, what is sustaining the universe is God and God alone. He is the Logos that is keeping everything together. And it's also at this point that John is introducing us to God's Son. He's saying not only was God the Father there at the beginning, so was God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So what is John trying to do here? He's trying to give you a a name and a face. For as you tackle these concepts of of who created everything, who is sustaining everything, John is saying it's, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is, it is this God, one God in three distinct persons that is sustaining life, that has created life, that is holding everything together. And the point of all this is that the audience would recognize how set apart, how high God is above us. This is the point of, of John 1, 1 and 2. So that you would see the greatness and the glory of God that is above you and I. And it's going to lead us to why the Christmas story is so important for you and us, you and I, us together. So John continues in verse 3. Still speaking of Jesus, he says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so again, John is trying to get you to understand Jesus is is set apart. He has created all things. And so that you don't get confused and think that somehow you and Jesus are on the same level. Right? He's, He's setting the standard, and that standard is Jesus, not you. So verse 3 sets this apart. Jesus is the creator. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And what this leads us to, what it points us to, is that Jesus has not come on the scene in Luke chapter 2 as a baby in the manger. That Jesus has always been. Jesus is God. Jesus was with God. Jesus has created. He is set apart. He is not just a baby in a manger. He is God Almighty. 
This is significant for you to understand why the Christmas story is so powerful for you and for me. So John continues in chapter 1, verse 4. John says this, In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus was there at the beginning. In eternity past, Jesus has always been. Jesus was there at creation. He is a, a part of everything that we see. Nothing has been made without him. And now, John gets to the point of, of this Christmas season when he says, and in him was life. This is an exclusive claim. It's not in him and, and others there was life. No, no, John is making an exclusive claim that in Jesus and Jesus alone, it's where life is found. Why is this significant for us? Over the last few weeks, I've laid out different stories of, of my time. I told you that I liked the airport. Some of you were very repulsed by that because you hate the airport. But part of that is because I love people watching. And so last night, we, my wife and I and our kids went to the game, and we're, we're just watching people. And I love it. It's fascinating to me. I just love to see how different people react to different things. And let me tell you, some of you, some of you react very differently to, to different things. I uh, got to see some different sides of you, but it's great. I love it. You're authentic. But don't pretend in here because now I know. So, but I, I just love watching people and, and seeing what makes them tick. But as I look at the word, and I see time and time again what the word says about humanity. It says two things. One, over and over again, it says that, that human beings, you and I, were created in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, one, you are, are set apart. Nothing else in all of creation has been created in the image of God. And so one, I hope that as we approach this Christmas season, you'll see people in that way. In the world of, of division, of disunity, that you would see people the way that God designed them. Not, not, not their sin, like we're accepting that, but that you would see people as unique, as image bearers of God, as a reflection of God Almighty. Because this is who you are. This is who we are. We are reflections of a holy, righteous God. And we would do well to see people in this light. But two, as I enjoy people watching and I, I watch them do all of these things and watch how they go about their business and, and I reflect on my own life, what I see is this. That according to the word, because of sin, all of those image bearers of God, set apart from all the rest of creation, are dead. Because of sin, they're dead. Now, this is the bad news of the Christmas story. 
The reason why Jesus had to come in the first place is because all of humanity, as, as, as unique, as, as specially designed as they are, reflections, echoes of the image of God, they are dead because of sin. And so John says this. He gives us the key. He says, but in Jesus, there's life. In him, there is life. And that life was the light of all mankind. You want to know why Christianity is, is controversial? Just read the Bible. We don't need to add controversial statements to it. You just read what the Scripture says, and it's controversial on its own. The Word tells us all of humanity is dead in their sin apart from Christ. But all can be redeemed through one way. Through him. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So Jesus has no beginning. Jesus is the creator of all that we see. And Jesus is the savior. John writes in, in one of his later letters, 1 John 5. He says this. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he makes a bold but clear statement in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There is an urgency in the Christmas story. We can get caught up in just the tradition of it. But there is an urgent plea in the Christmas story that says, believe in Jesus and be saved. This is the only way. This is why Christianity is so controversial. It claims exclusivity. It says all of humanity is in the same boat in that all are dead in their sin and there is one way to life. It is through Jesus. And as we approach a baby in a manger in Luke chapter 2, you start to recognize why it had to happen. You start to see actually the, the brutality of the manger. Not in it itself, but that this, this baby born in the flesh, who was fully God, fully man, came for one purpose only to lay down his life for you and I. John Piper says this. As we consider why Jesus came, he says, And consider now not only the life that Jesus sacrificed for us, but also consider what the sacrifice involved. To get to the point where he could die, Jesus had to plan for it. He left the glory of heaven and took on human nature so that he could hunger and get weary and, the end, and in the end suffer and die. The incarnation was the preparation of nerve endings for the nails of the cross. Jesus needed a broad human back for a place to be scourged. 
He needed a brow and skull as a place for the thorns. He needed cheeks for Judas's kiss and soldier's spit. He needed hands and feet for spikes. He needed a side as a place for the sword to pierce. And he needed a brain and a spinal cord with no vinegar and no gall so that he could feel the entire excruciating death for you. You start to recognize that this is one continuous story. You start to recognize that the baby in a manger was, was there to grow up to be a man who lived a sinless life but yet died a sinful man's death. This is why he came. For you and your sin and me and my sin. As we wrapped up last week, we ended our, our series on Romans chapter 8. And there was a moment at the end of Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, that Paul makes some audacious claims. In fact, what Paul does is he, he gives you this laundry list of, of everything a human can experience in this life. Powers and authorities, heights nor depths, everything that you can think of, every scenario that you can think of was, was found in that list. And he comes to this conclusion. And this is the good news of the Christmas story. Paul says, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. John says the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 5. He's saying the exact same thing. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So as we celebrate the word becoming flesh, born to a virgin in a manger, growing to be a man who would live perfectly and yet die the death reserved for imperfect men and women, we're celebrating the unconquerable salvation plan of Jesus. What shall separate us? What can the darkness penetrate when it comes to the light the answer is wholeheartedly forever because of Jesus nothing nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and nothing can make the darkness penetrate the light verse 6 there was a man sent from God whose name was John he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. Here's the key. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. If you want to see your role in this, it's the same as John's. John is recognizing salvation's not in me. I'm not the light that, that pierces the darkness. I'm simply telling of the one who has come who is the light. Church, this is your role. We would do well to recognize our place in salvation just like John has. He says, it's not in me. But I'm going to tell you about the one where it is found. Let me tell you about the one 
who was born a sinless baby in a manger, who, who lived a sinless life, who, who died a sinful man's death, which was, should have been reserved for you and for me. Let me tell you about him. It's not in me, but I can lead you to him. This is your role in God's plan of salvation, to tell, to be the messenger, to be the witness to the light. And John continues in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming in to the world. As we come to this time of year, people naturally seem to be more open to at least hearing the story. And the reality of what John has laid out is there are really, there's really two options. Believe in Jesus who is the light of the world or continue on in darkness. We, we live in a world and, and in a time where Jesus is seen as a, a good moral teacher. Or Jesus is seen as a, a good example to follow, but, but really not much more than that. What John has, has gone to great lengths to explain is he's, he's, not, he's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a good example. He is the light of men. He is where life is found. So don't just, don't just try to live by his example as your plan of salvation. No, accept that you cannot do it totally and perfectly. Believe in him and then walk in obedience to him. Be transformed by him. But first, it starts from coming to the place that you recognize your place in the plan of salvation. And it is simply those who needed saving. John writes later on in this book, he lays out the, the two paths that one can take one that leads to darkness and one that leads to light. And he says this. He says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only, only to steal and kill and destroy. Why did Jesus come? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is why he came. To be the sacrifice to lead you to the life that you could not live yourself. To lead you to the eternal life that you could not do enough good to get yourself into. No, Christ has come to give you forgiveness of sin now, to walk in freedom now, and walk in life forever. This is why he came. For all who would believe in his son. I'm going to skip down to John chapter 10, verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is a solid, set in stone, never to be diminished, never to be overcome plan of salvation that started at the beginning of all things with the one who is above all, the one who created all, and the one who has come 
in the flesh. This is the great distinction of Christianity. This is what makes it controversial, and yet this is what separates it from every other belief. You have major world religions that continually teach that that you need to work yourself closer to God. That the plan of salvation is simply a mountain to be climbed, and you better get busy. Judaism, you must obey the Jewish law and customs. Islam, Muslims must practice the five pillars successfully. And I would add, even then, they would claim to not really know the mind of God, and so they really have no assurance. It's just really how God is feeling this particular day. Hinduism, the individual must purify himself from evil in life after life after life. Buddhism must renounce self in order to reach nirvana. You you see the common denominator in every other belief. It is what you do, what separates Christianity and sets it apart, and it is what God has done. Every other religion teaches, work your way to God, climb the mountain. And Christianity says, no, that's an impossible climb, so God came to you. This is the good news that you need. This is the good news that you need. John finishes this section in verse 11 through 13. He says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. D.A. Carson says this because we, we live in a time where uh, we're, we're, we're looking for saving in all different areas of life. When, when what John is trying to center you on is, this is what you need. This is your soul's deepest longing, and it's been met in Jesus Christ. But D.A. Carson says this. He says, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. As we continue to celebrate what God has done in in that manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, we're reminded this is your greatest need. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. This is your soul's deepest longing. And so the question is this. Is have you run to him? 
or are you still trying to manufacture salvation on your own? Because what, what the manger, what the cross, what the empty tomb should, should remind you of is it's not found in you. All of this was done for you because you could not do it yourself. And so the question is this. As we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate uh, the, the beginning of our redemption story that started in eternity past and developed into flesh in the manger and continued all the way through the cross and the empty tomb. The question is, are you sick of running anywhere else? Are you tired from from trying to find it in yourself, from from finding it in what you have or, or what you do or who you are? The redemption story of Jesus is a reminder first and foremost that it is not in you. That your plan in God's sal- or your part in God's salvation story was, was simply the people who needed rescuing. But in just a moment, we're going to sing another song to him, praising his name. And by the way, you all sounded fantastic this morning. Like, as we're singing, you start to get a glimpse of, of, of just a, a momentary glimpse of what it's going to be like in the presence of God as we we sing praise to him knowing that this plan has been completed. That we are standing in his presence. Why? Because the God who was at the beginning, who was above all, who created all, has come down in the flesh to be your sacrifice. And and so in just a moment, we're going to sing again. and, And now... I expect you to ratchet it up a notch. Praising him for what he has done. He is the light that you need. And the darkness has not, cannot, and will not overcome it. Father, thank you for this truth. Father, we thank you for the words that you inspired John to write. Lord, that show us that that the Christmas story didn't begin in a manger. It began in eternity past. That you've reminded us who you are. That you are far above us. That your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Father, as, as sinful men and women, we had no hope in and of ourselves. So, Father, as we we sing praises to you, may it be a reminder that you've acted, that you've come down. And through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection, Lord, your promise is you'll take us with you. God, may that be the hope, the hope that is found in your love for us, that drives us in this Christmas season that we would remember that you have saved us once and for all. And as Paul said, there is nothing that can separate us from you when we've believed in your son. So Father, today, if that's something we have not done yet, Father, as your Holy Spirit is is drawing us in, Lord, may, may this be the day that we simply submit to you 
believe in you, confess that you are Lord, obey your command to be baptized, to receive your Holy Spirit and walk in the newness of life that only you can give. Lord, may you draw us to you today. Father, it is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing another song here in just a moment. As you leave this morning, I've loved getting to know a lot of you, but I know there's a lot of you I still haven't met. And so as you leave this morning, I'm going to be in the back. I would love to just simply introduce yourself, introduce myself to you. Even if I've met you two or three times, I guarantee I probably haven't remembered yet. But from Janelle and I, we just want to say thank you. Uh, for how you've welcomed us into this place, for how you've loved us. And uh, so I I just want to get to know you, and and our elders will be out there as well. And so if you don't know them, uh, get to know them as well. That's a a great group of godly men. And so I want to invite you to that as you leave this morning. But before that, uh, let's stand and honor the king who has laid down his life for you and I.